Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. Inspired by the mission, 7 billion fulfilled people, I track down the greatest thought leaders on the planet and interview them about happiness and fulfillment. Today I'm speaking with Oliver Berkman. Oliver is the author of the books The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, which explores the upsides of negativity, uncertainty, failure and imperfection, as well as the book Help, How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done. He's a writer for The Guardian and has a weekly column called This Column Will Change Your Life, where he writes about social psychology, self-help culture, productivity and science of happiness. He's interviewed everyone from Jerry Seinfeld, Al Gore, Eckhart Tolle, 50 Cent and Malcolm Gladwell, among many, many others. So it's a huge honour. Oliver, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me. I heard something you said, I think it was seven years ago, it was back in 2010, and you said um, the world of self-help is a really, really strange one with very, with many very strange people, but there's some useful stuff hiding amongst there too. What got you into this line of work? How did it all start? Because soon you're going to find out, you probably don't fit into the box of, you know, you can do it, come on, positive t- positivity. What got you started? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, well, I mean, the, there's a simple, superficial answer to the question, and then the real one. I think the superficial one is, you know, I'm a journalist. I was a journalist then. I'm, I'm interested in um, sort of uh, exploring worlds that are unfamiliar to me, and it's a world that had a lot of opportunity for sort of, um, uh, you know, it was funny and weird and eccentric, and there was lots to mock, and that was and that was great. But I don't want to. I think I'd be totally uh, disingenuous if I said that all I was doing was just doing it to mock. What I was really doing, I think, looking back, was, you know, I wanted to engage with this stuff. I would like to know how to become happier and I would like to know how to be more productive and uh, better relationships and, and all the rest of it. The great thing about being a journalist is you can go into these worlds that you might be embarrassed to go into otherwise in some way and you can just say, oh, it's just for research. So you have this kind of cover story that enables you to sort of plunge into these things. And, you know, I did discover that a huge amount of it is, in my opinion, uh, rubbish, but not all of it at all. And I wouldn't have been able to discover that, I don't think, if um, if I hadn't done been able to, you know, find some excuse or reason to, to get into it. So I'm totally, at this point, totally content and happy to say that I looked into it because I wanted to be happier, you know, because I'm as neurotic and troubled as the next uh person but uh, at the time it was sort of done with this cover story of um you know uh, i'm just investigating in a, in a in a in an objective way i mean you're talking about you know the sort of some of you know that yeah, the, the, some of the cheesiness that is out there like have you now that you've dug deeper i mean have you, have you have you been pretty surprised about what you found along the way i think the really interesting thing that i discovered is you know it's not only that you need to keep your wits about you in this world and be very skeptical and reject things that sound very um, promising because actually there's something about them that isn't that isn't right. It's also the reverse. It's also that people like me, people who are sort of like to think of themselves as skeptical and you can't pull the wool over my eyes sort of stuff. Sometimes you come across stuff that's really cheesy and embarrassing, but actually does work. And, and actually, um, you know, the research backs it up. And at some point, you know, I think you have to choose. Are you going to say, I'm not going to keep a gratitude diary because that's totally embarrassing? Or are you going to say, well, actually it works, you know, so um, maybe it's time to get over myself. I think you need to, 
you need to be willing to discard things, but you need to also be willing to get over your reaction, especially if you're a Brit and you're sort of, <laughs> you know, slightly look down at all this stuff. Sometimes, um, sometimes the problem is that response of yours rather than, um, rather than the book or the, or the expert or, or, or the technique that you're, uh, that you're looking at. One of, one of the keys and areas that you've, you've looked at in particular, I mean, it's going to be in a theme the whole way through, but in particular in the book Antidote is this idea that too much focus on positivity and optimism, uh, even though that's almost been like the poster child, you know, for like, for years, you know, it's all about positivity. It's all about optimism. That's actually, it's the problem. It's not the answer, isn't it? I mean, it's emerged that books of positive thinking affirmations actually are making a lot of people more unhappy. How, how so? Well, a lot of research does back this idea up, but I would want to say the idea goes way back in philosophy and the roots of psychology. Um, John Stuart Mill, the philosopher, said, uh, ask yourself whether you are happy and you cease to be so. There's, there's something about happiness such that if you really look it in the face and, and try to get it, um, that's like the worst way to obtain it. And we all have this experience of sort of realizing that yesterday or last year or something, we were incredibly happy. Something was wonderfully enjoyable. We weren't quite conscious of that uh, at the moment, in the moment. And really what has been discovered by the research, I think, is just this fact that um, the human mind just doesn't work in this kind of mechanistic way where you tell it what to think and then and feel and it thinks and feels those things. Apart from anything else, like you're the one doing the telling as well, right? So there's some, it's already a strange situation where I'm going to tell myself to focus on happy thoughts. There's something odd going on there. And what they found again and again in sort of small contexts and bigger ones is, is that um, there's what's called an ironic effect, that, that if you spend your day uh, really trying to think happy thoughts and scanning your mind for any trace of a negative thought, um, then really what happens is that negative thoughts become much more salient and it's actually turned into quite a stressful, a stressful way to live. The analogy I use, and I use it in the book, you know, is if you tell someone to not think about a polar bear for two minutes, um, almost everybody will just have to think about a polar bear. Like you can't, you can't, you can't succeed in that, in that task. So in the same way, you know, I'm going to go through my life avoiding failure and avoiding negativity. I'm going to only focus on happy thoughts. It, it's almost setting yourself up for, doing the opposite yeah i mean yeah you like when we focus on eliminating negativity we actually end up bringing about that just as a result the, the thing that we're trying to avoid it's that's it like don't look at the negativity don't don't focus on bad don't focus on the bad um and also you know there's, there's other reasons why i think positive thinking is very limited especially in, in the fringes of it where you get this idea that it's everything that you know uh you literally don't need to worry at all about your socioeconomic circumstances or your physical health or, you know, as long as you're focusing on the right thoughts, then reality will manifest in this, in this perfect way. And it's actually, you know, sometimes people accuse me of not of just being grumpy and I sort of embrace it as a joke, but actually a verge a philosophy of happiness that is more resilient, that can cope with something going wrong instead of always demanding always trying to convince yourself that everything's going to go right it's actually much more resilient it means you can stay happy through or, or at least you know somewhat happy or, or, or stable and calm through thick and thin and bad stuff happens to everyone at some point so it seems crazy to me to adopt a philosophy that insists that it's not going to because like it is <laughs> 
Okay. Is the uh, was it is the the quote I think by Edith Wharton? Um, if only we stopped trying so hard to be happy, we'd have a pretty good time. So it's that it's right? A- yes, it's exactly. It's a recipe for happiness. It is not saying resign yourself to despair. It's actually just a different route to what I think is a is a is a more profound kind of happiness. Yeah. Well, we, we've seen it's um it's getting it's getting a lot of popularity recently, especially in some of like um uh, I think it's big in like the sports scene and the big in like Silicon Valley, this, this renewed interest in stoicism, we, you see it popping up everywhere. And I mean, this is back in ancient Greeks and Romes, you know, this isn't, this isn't like a new idea. Um, but for anyone who's not familiar, what, what, what do you feel like personifies this, this stoicism moving? Why, why, why is it getting such a um, renewed excitement at the moment? Do you think? That's a good question. I mean, I, I explore stoicism in part of the book, uh, The Antidote, and I think it's incredibly powerful. I think it's also limited. I don't think that just being a stoic is probably quite enough in a way, but but it has these kind of amazing insights, some of which can sound a little bit like positive thinking at first, such as that, you know, it's not events in the world that cause us to be distressed. It's our beliefs about events in the world. Um, nothing ever happened to you that was bad in and of itself except that you have a belief that that it's bad. Now, at that point, a positive thinker is going to say, so just believe that everything that happens to you is good and you're fine. The Stoics were much more um, sophisticated than that. And they said, well, no, just, just understand that, that this is how the world is. And for a start, that's kind of liberating in a way. It makes you understand that um, usually you're sort of thinking catastrophically about things when actually they're just mildly negative or something like that. And also then um, you get this idea in Stoicism of um, understanding what it is you can control and what you can't. And I think we make ourselves very miserable in life by trying to exert control over the part of reality that we can't control, mm-hmm. paying insufficient attention to what we can. Sorry, as for why it's popular now, um, there's lots of possibilities. I, I sort of tend to think that it's not really possible looking around over the last decade, you know, whether politically, economically, environmentally, it's not really possible to, to look at the world and say, everything's just getting better, you know, and it's just always going to continue getting better. And that's clear. Uh, and so any sort of philosophy that is based on that, 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 that is already going to seem very sort of inadequate. Um, and the Stoics, of course, you know, some of the original Stoics, um, the, situ- the, the, the actual situations they had to deal with, um, being being born and raised as a, as a slave in one case, or um, being ordered to uh, kill yourself by the Emperor Nero uh, in, in another, you know, like these were kind of hellish lives. So it's kind of natural that they developed a, a philosophy that could be resilient in the face of of that kind of stuff. And compared to that, you know, maybe the various nightmarish aspects of the 21st century aren't, aren't quite so bad. But, you know, we, I think it's really useful to have a kind of way of thinking about happiness that, that can deal with the shocks of, of, of reality. Okay, I'm, I'm going to just... One thing you said there, because you, you obviously you, you work for a newspaper, so I don't know if this is, like, this is a um, yeah, sensitive topic, but do you think that things are actually 
getting more he- worse or do you think just our, our our new cycle and we're just so much more aware of it so we just got way better at you know um just like be it twitter be it whatever with the 24-hour news cycle like because there's two different schools of thoughts like some people are just like you know on every single metric be it you know um safety like education x y and z like we're in the the best time in human history but so many, many of us believe that armageddon's around the corner like, well, what's your opinion on that well i did actually write a piece about this a few weeks ago so this is all at the top of my uh mind and um uh, yeah, I, I in that piece gave an airing to the idea that the media uh, distorts our views a lot. So I'm, I'm evidently uh, they didn't find me at this point yeah, <laughs> saying that. So I mean, and it's not. And again, to be clear, it's not. There are media. I don't think I work for one, but there are media that sort of systematically misrepresent what's going on. I think the more dangerous issue with the media as a whole is that it just brings us true news of uh, bad aspects of the world that we then sort of disproportionately build our perspective on, right? So there's fake news that tells you things are happening that are not happening. But then there's just the idea that the news media is a giant machine for finding all the bad things that are happening in the world and telling them to you. And there's all sorts of reasons of the evolutionary psychology, I think, why we are so compelled by awful stories, because a very long time ago in human evolutionary history, it was very important to be compelled by um, stories of, of threats that could threaten you personally but of course most of what you see on the news mostly is if it's a you know however terrible a disaster in a foreign country a long way away may be how much it may require you to act as a good citizen and give money or something it's probably not a threat to you um and yet we respond emotionally like it like it like it is um i mean in that so in that piece i sort of ended up coming to the conclusion you know yeah i think the media and social media especially really do give us a, a worse sense of things than, than, than they really are. Yes, I think on all metrics, things are getting better, but it's not quite the end of the story. I still think like things are a lot, lot worse than they could be given human expertise and, and um, scientific understanding. And, uh, you know, so, for example, the, the classic example is famine. All famines today are due to politics and, mm. and war. They're not due to you know, Lack of food. an absence of food in the, on the planet. There are way fewer famines than there used to be, and that's brilliant. But it's also kind of scandalous that there are any. Yeah. So it's all a question of which perspective you come from, whether you think that, like, the world is a terrible place and you're going to be depressed about it, or the world is a wonderful place compared to a few hundred years ago and you're going to be very happy about it. I, I think we ought to be able to be sort of realistic about it and optimistic in a sense but but not in a way that denies reality. And, uh, you know, eventually this is just the same message I keep saying over and over. But like if you if you build a way of looking at the world that involves denying reality, it's going to come and bite you eventually. You know, back in 1951, Alan Watts wrote a thin treatise called uh, The Wisdom of Insecurity, where he discusses something called the backwards law. Could you maybe explain what that's about? Yeah, this little book was sort of partly what spurred me to write uh, my less little book. Um, uh, he um, he basically makes the case that, you know, he talks about how everyone feels incredibly insecure these days, which means like 1951, um, which is a good reminder that people always feel that their own time in history is the uh, is the most um, 
anxious. <laughs> and, he, and, and he sort of makes this argument, which has a deep connection to all sorts of spiritual traditions. We could go into that if you like, but that the main reason we feel so insecure in life or as a society, whatever level you look at it, is because we try so hard to, to feel secure. So it, it's, it's the sort of, it's a bit like, you know, quicksand. I think, it, I don't know that quicksand actually works like this, but the, uh, the, the cliche is that if you're stuck in quicksand, the more you struggle to get out, the deeper you get sucked in. Um, and, and he sort of made this case that um, in some quite profound sense that I probably can't convey brilliantly in conversation, trying to feel completely safe in the world is like a mistake because something about life is inherently uncertain and insecure and unknowable and uh, sort of unsafe in a way. And and even he would have said this doesn't mean you shouldn't have proper boundaries in relationships and, you know, not let people walk all over you or abuse you or whatever. But, but that this idea that we're ever going to get to a time in our lives where we feel completely in control, completely secure and completely safe, like not only is that not going to happen, but that's the problem. That's the thing. That desire is what's causing you to feel so uncertain and, and insecure. And if you can somehow sort of see that and get past it uh, and just sort of give yourself to the uncertainty of the world and the lack of control that we have over uh, how our lives unfold, um, that's not just like more in tune with reality, but it's actually much more uh, enjoyable uh, way to live because you're no longer sort of trying to pull yourself out of life into this safe little space. You're sort of diving in instead. So uh, that, I think that's... Well, I guess if, 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 it's, if, it's, if it's called the backwards law, I guess it would work both ways. So if we're trying to hold on to this idea of security and in, in that we're just getting more insecurity, would it work on the flip side? The, the more that we, yeah, the more that we just embrace this idea of insecurity by embracing that insecurity there, there's a there's a security in in that so i guess does it work both ways yeah no I, I think that's true and i think that a lot of people who have for example meditated a lot and, you know i think this is one of the messages in sort of buddhist psychology and, and philosophy is that yeah i mean you you sort of um What's the right way of putting it? If you if you are able to sort of not not mind what happens in a sense, you know, if you're able to go through life seeing negative emotions when they arise and letting go of them and doing all of that, then really you are in a certain kind of way you're sort of indestructible in a sense. I mean, you know, maybe that's overstating it, but but in, instead of um, instead of sort of covering yourself with armor or building a wall around yourself that could then be knocked down, metaphorically speaking, you're just sort of going out naked into the world and, and you can't be, um, uh, you know, you, you can't have the clothes torn from you if you're already naked, I suppose. So I'm going to continue that metaphor. <laughs> to, um, keep, it, keep it going. To the end. Um, and I, so I think, yeah, I think there's something very powerful in that. I'm, you know, some people, there's disagreements to be had. Does it mean you should really, you know, go and do lots of extreme sports so that you're really scared all the time? Uh, that will depend on people's personalities. But I think it's really useful to ask whenever you feel anxious or insecure or, or, or um, worried about the future, you know, to what extent is this arising from this kind of unhelpful desire to get to be somewhere totally 
safe and secure that you don't really need you know mm. i hope that makes sense yeah no, absolutely there's um that there's a technique with uh i just i just love the name the premeditation of evils it's hilarious name yeah the premeditation of evils what what is that 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 ties back to the the uh the stoicism that we were talking about earlier but yeah could you yeah, explain this is great this is very much you know this is great very much on the level of just a little technique that i think is really is really helpful the other way to think about it is a sort of negative visualization so it's about not the, the standard thing in self-help and positive thinking is like decide what you want picture yourself winning the race or the account in the office whatever you know like all the huge amounts of money and then like that'll help it become reality and there's some evidence that it has does at least for some people the opposite effect because it sort of convinces them on a subconscious level they've already achieved the goal so they stop um they stop striving for it um but the premeditation of evils flips that on its head and says you know if you're feeling anxious about something in the future really in detail think through and contemplate and visualize the worst thing that could happen um because usually when we are in any way worried or unhappy about the future we try to reassure ourselves right or other people you know we try to convince ourselves that it's all going to be fine but this is very fragile because you have to keep replenishing that sense of reassurance if instead you you ask like well okay what if, what if it isn't fine um what could really happen if it isn't fine um it's a much more resilient way of thinking because, you know, firstly, you will probably discover that you were exaggerating things in your head. I think we all have an inbuilt tendency to, you know, treat every worrying thing as the kind of ultimately worrying thing. So small, you're anxious, but your emotional reactions are a little bit like you just heard that a nuclear missile has been launched at your city. You know, they're kind of it's it might be something very small, but your emotional reactions are as if it was very big. And so the premeditation of evils helps bring that down to size because you'll think, well, OK, suppose giving this talk to this group of people, I really did make a fool of myself. Like, what's going to happen? OK, it would be really embarrassing. A couple of hundred people would think I was stupid. Uh, maybe I'd like lose some theoretical work opportunity I was otherwise going to. Have. OK, it might be bad, but it isn't like, you know, my house and everyone I know got destroyed in a war or something so firstly you cut it down to size and then secondly um you you just sort of uh well i think you're just sort of more prepared for it you're just you're not you're not trying to you know, there's not something you're really trying to not think about anymore so you know even if the even if you are faced by something in life where the answer is well actually it would be really really bad it is the worst that could that could happen um nonetheless there's something so um, sort of freeing about being like, well, okay, I, I'm allowed to think about that. I don't have to keep this kind of screened off portion of my mind where I'm got to not not focus on that. Um, and so it's very sort of empowering in that respect too. So you know, every day in minor ways, I'm always asking myself, like, okay, well, what's that actual worst case scenario here? I guess a, part, a big part of it would be the the uncertainty because so the the idea of not knowing is often more terrifying. So say for example, I'm, I'm in, you're in a cafe and on the other table there's you know there's an attractive girl and you want to ask them out and it's it's I guess a lot of it's that uncertainty. So if in your head you define okay what is the worst okay 
she stands up and says, are you kidding? Like, what the hell? Like, not a chance. Guys, everyone listen to this. This guy wants to ask you out. Like, ha Like, everyone, the whole cafe laughs in your face. If, if you're going to define it as the worst thing, and then you're like, eh, fuck it, and then do it anyway, then by, by, by making that uncertainty, by defining your nightmare, and you can see it, it, come, it, it almost... It's it's like you know um, whatever like you you in your bed you know the monster under the bed by yeah. actually defining what the nightmare is somehow by giving it a form makes it less terrifying because I, almost the uncertainty is more scary because if you because yeah because if you don't give it a form uh, you just go to a hundred percent you know in in terms of your catastrophizing and I think what's really important about all this is that it's just like it's just a general way of thinking about life that, that doesn't um, that, that doesn't rely on kind of, as I say, blocking things out. It, it, you can just sort of face everything. And I think meditation helps with that as well. You know, this kind of like, okay, this stuff can come up in my emotional world. That's okay. I don't need to be like on a tightrope, really, really hoping that uh, certain emotional uh, experiences don't bubble up in me or that certain uh, situations don't befall me in my life. And then, of course, you can go ahead and do stuff. I mean, that's the, you know, I think it's it's very interesting looking at research into entrepreneurs and, you know, what they really do as opposed to what we sort of think they do. Um, and they, you're often using techniques like this, you know, to be like, okay, I don't know this is going to work, but I've figured out the worst that could happen if it didn't work. That's good enough for me. I'll take the next step, you know, and it's a very sort of motivating uh, thing. I think positive thinking can be very demotivating because it's sort of, you, have to, you feel like you have to be so careful to, to get everything, every step right. I, I have a principle which kind of, what you're saying, just reminded me of it a little bit. It's um, whenever I'm going to try something like brand new or like big or scary, you know, whatever, like pack up and move to a different country or whatever, it's either going to be awesome or it's going to be awful. And then you'll get an awesome story out of it. And so I often actually even prefer the second. So if you try something new, it'll either be awesome or awful and you'll get a good story out of it. And so often if something's such a crash and burn and it's a complete failure, then normally that's the kind of like looking back, that's the kind of, that's the material that like, that you can just, that you've got for years to come. You know, when, when, when you're at your, your lowest or when, you know, you, you end up sort of without a penny and you're like in a random country, like those are the kind of amazing stories, which I just love. So I almost prefer things when, when they don't work out because you get a great story out of it. No, I, I totally see that. I think, you know, you get to dine out and, and also, um, you know, it's another reminder that, uh, and this comes across from a lot of the social psychology researchers, you probably know, you know we're terrible at predicting what's going to make us happy or, or uh, fulfilled anyway. So, if, we, if you really just relentlessly fixate on some very narrowly defined goals, which is something we're often told we should do, um, you can, you're going to miss these opportunities because um, it's like you're going to decide now, this year, at this point in history, that you know what the best thing to be doing is in like three years' time. It's, it's obviously absurd. You, you, talking about goals you just teed me up like you became a big fan not of these big ambitious goals but actually goals that are so small they're they're laughable tell me about your kitchen timer and maybe some examples of these micro goals well so i have this kitchen timer that i carry everywhere with me it lasted a long time i just had to replace it it was like it was amazing it had lasted about like 10 years or something which no other gadget in my life ever does um which i would use to sort of all sorts of tricks like you know 
get to get started on some work project that I know is important, but I don't feel like doing. I will maybe do like five minutes on it or something like that. There are all these techniques on, there's this thing called the Pomodoro technique that you've probably come across online where you work for 25 minutes and then take a break for five and do that four times and then take a longer break. And all these kind of systems to just sort of get you up and running. I think the thing about really tiny goals, um, that's only one of the things that I'm sort of into, but I think, you know, if you're really finding it difficult to get started on something, uh, a sort of daily habit, for example, uh, I, I think ridiculously tiny goals are very helpful. You know, maybe you should, maybe you're beginning your exercise plan should be to go walk on a walk for 30 seconds and then, you know, next day it's 40 seconds. It's stupid, but by definition, things that are stupid can't be scary, right? So, mm. so um, you might feel like it's a waste of your time to go on a 30 second walk. But you're not going to feel like it's an intimidating thing that you can't bring yourself to do. Um, you know, if you are into meditation but can't seem to get into it, decide to do at least a minute a day. Um, and, like, it's going to happen because it's fine. You know, it's, and, and then, of course, you hope to build out from there. But um, there's somebody I, I need to give credit for this, and I can't remember who I should credit, but there's somebody who makes the same point about, like, well, you know, if you need to floss your teeth, start with flossing one tooth. Um, <laughs> because, like, the, bow, the, the that hurdle is so low that you can easily step over it. So I think that's a, I think that's, a and that's the problem with a lot of um, New Year's resolutions. I mean, people have, like, the best intentions, but it's like, okay, I'm going to go to the gym five days a week. And say, for example, yeah. the first few weeks, you, you go three times a week. You, you feel like a failure and then that you know because right, you haven't right. hit your and then it's it's crazy so i think you know people's new year's resolution should be put on your trainers put on your trainers and then take them off wow every day i gotta put on my running shoes and then just take them straight off amazing what does a fulfilled life mean to you oh wow i mean it's so tempting to try to answer that on a philosophical level and to do that i would just say you know it is it's a meaningful life more than it's a Meaningfulness seems to me seems to matter more, I think, than, than pure happiness. I, I would I would rather get to the end of my life and feel like I'd done the things that mattered, rather than that I just made sure that I was feeling good as much as possible in the time. On a um, on a more sort of concrete level, uh, you know, in many ways it sounds so cliché. You know, good, absorbing work, spending time with my Family, we have a little baby now, so that's uh, you know uh, that's, that's he's a, a, a huge source of fulfilment and sleepless sleep <laughs> deprivation, but, um, but also fulfilment. Uh, I love sort of hiking and uh, and um, you know spending time with good friends. It's all cliche, right? But there's kind of something interesting about that, yeah. which is don't necessarily assume that the thing that will make your that will fulfill you the most in life has to be sort of extraordinary to people on the outside you know, it might be some of these great universal things work people nature you know um and uh and that's kind of fine you know i think you know being daring to be ordinary in certain aspects of one's life is quite an important um, it's quite an important thing i didn't give you a speed answer to that speed question i just say speed answer you can take as long as you like what <laughs> is one thing our listeners can start doing today that'll have a positive impact on their lives the thing that currently makes the most difference on that level of technique for me is I do uh, this thing, uh, morning pages, that you've probably 
heard of and discussed, which is just like I fill three sides of a sort of moderately large notebook with complete stream of consciousness writing uh, pretty much first thing when I when I get up. Um, it's not because I'm a writer. I'm not trying to sort of plan articles or write stories or anything. It's really just journaling. It's just like whatever is uh, knocking around my mind in the morning can be very mundane, can be huge melodramatic problems in my life, whatever, you know. Um, and it's for no one else ever to see. But the point is you just keep going, you keep the pen moving. Um, takes me, you know, 30, 35 minutes probably by the time it's uh, done. So it's not a tiny, tiny time investment, but it's just weird how much of a difference it makes. Like maybe it's just because I'm brushing away the cobwebs from my mind before I head off into the day. Sometimes I feel like I do get amazing insights and breakthrough, you know, understandings of things I'm facing or whatever. Um, so I just, I just, it just can't hurt. And there's quite a lot of scientific evidence to back it up now as well. If, if, uh, if that's your, that's your thing. What's funny, this kind of ties in a little bit to the, um, the micro goals. For some reason, the idea of journaling and keeping a diary, like I've always, I wanted to do it for years and years and years, but there was this big resistance where it kind of just felt like homework and it felt like, Oh, like I can't be bothered, you know? And then starting with the micro goals, it was, I think, I think I started with just each day, just bullet points, like three things I'm grateful for, three successes. And the fact that it was just a bullet point, that it was just like, it was, it was such an easy, sure, I can do yeah. that in a few minutes. And then what happened was then that suddenly turned into like two pages, three pages, because it, I was just, I was enjoying it and it didn't, it, it didn't feel like homework. It was just fun and it's enjoyable. But I think if I tried to start with it having to be this big thing, then I probably never would have started. So it kind of ties into that idea of micro goals, what you're talking about earlier. That actually got me over the, over the edge of the, the journaling sure. thing. Yeah. Instead of three sides of a notebook, make it two lines of a notebook. If that's going to, if that's what's going to get you um, to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Last but not least, how can people find out more about you and your work? Where can we send them? I spend too much time on Twitter at uh, Oliver Berkman and um, my website is oliverberkman.com. Uh, it's uh, there's, there's quite a bit of stuff there. It's, it's, um, it's in the, it's in an imminent state of being relaunched like every writer's website that uh, I know. But um and then my, my books are, you know, where you'd expect to find books. It's, it's fantastic. And it's, there are some amazing articles there. So, Oliver, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. It's been, it's been really fascinating. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for asking me.